Welcome to Roll Calling, a podcast about actors we love and the movies we love them in. I'm Ned Baker, a filmmaker and an actor. And I'm Caroline Sita, a film and TV critic for the AV Club. The way this podcast works is that Caroline and I take turns curating a five-film miniseries featuring an actor we love. Last month, we kicked off our podcast with a Christian Bale retrospective, and then last week, we started our Emily Blunt miniseries, Breaking Down the Devil Wears Prada, in which a 23-year-old Emily Blunt played a fashion-obsessed, career-driven, hilariously petty character, also named Emily. And this week, we are looking at a character and movie series that are, if you think about it, really like night and day different from that. The character's name, although I'm not sure, I don't feel like they ever say it in the movie. I don't think they do. Okay, well, the character's name officially is Evelyn Abbott, you might not know. And the movies are A Quiet Place and A Quiet Place Part 2. So first, let me tell you a little bit about the plan for today's episode, just to uh, give you some behind the scenes. We usually record a few weeks in advance. So first, we are going to have a discussion of A Quiet Place, which we'll have spoilers for that, but none for A Quiet Place Part 2. Then we're going to take a brief break and jump forward in time, and then we will discuss A Quiet Place Part 2 in the second half of our episode, and I'll drop some time code in the show notes if that interests you. Uh, So, Caroline, do you remember... When A Quiet Place came out? Do you have memories of that time? I do. And I actually think they involved you because oh, yeah. a little a little behind the scenes details of my life is that as as a person who's very into film, I think horror is very much my blind spot just as a genre. Mm. Because I don't like the sensation of being scared. I never investigated what scared me or not. I just avoided it entirely. <laughs> So I have not seen a lot of horror, and I particularly have not seen a lot of horror in theaters. But you and your partner, Emily, have been very graciously sort of guiding me through the world of horror over the past couple of years. And I distinctly remember before I saw A Quiet Place texting both of you or at least one of you and being like, is this movie too scary? Can I handle it? And you're both like, yeah, you'll be fine. And that was correct. This is not, I don't really find this movie, I find this movie very fun and like thrilling and suspenseful. This is a perfect level of horror for me to have. Um, yes. But yeah, that was sort of, so thank you years later for. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. I mean, it's been very fun. This. It's been very fun. Maybe we'll get to talk about more horror films in this. I'm not sure. Uh, they don't, they don't tend to be films that always attract uh, some of the, the caliber of character actor that we discuss in here but i love horror films i didn't used to i also did not enjoy being scared but sometime in my 20s it kind of clicked and now i have some really fond feelings for some horror movies in particular that i think we've watched like scream Mm -hmm. uh we might have watched the babadook i forget um but uh yeah i remember this film being marketed as a horror but hitting is this kind of cultural phenomenon i mean it really kind of blew up i mean the the numbers support this but i also just have an impression of it being a a real cultural moment of everyone was talking about you got to go see this cool quiet big scary ass monster movie um so a little background on this movie uh i figured it'd be fun to start with a little bit of Emily Blunt and John Krasinski relationship goss. A romance for the ages. A romance what for a the ages. What a movie star couple they are. 
I know. I think it's really cute. I mean, for starters, they're a movie star couple that's still together. Some of our most iconic ones have parted ways. Uh, they There's just something kind of like, I don't know, high-key adorable about the version of themselves that they present. Mm-hmm. Uh, they feel like they are cultivating a very wholesome image. Yes. They're their, both there, their... especially him. Were you an office person? Did you watch The Office? No, you know, I never watched it and it's not a it's not a stance against it, but I I just never watched it. Yeah, I was a big office person when it was airing. I will always think back fondly on it. I haven't felt like a huge impulse to rewatch it or anything, but I do think that really solidified John Krasinski as such a wholesome American figure. Yeah. <laughs> and then he married this quirkier, I would say, British lady, and that seems like it's a nice balance for both of them. Yes, quirkier and with more of a sort of, uh, I'd say, uh, prestigious acting mm-hmm. career, but not counterculture, <laughs> not edgy, I no. would say, in her public personality. Right, she's Mary I'd Poppins. She's, yeah, you're right, she's Mary Poppins. They, Disney wouldn't have touched her if she actually had any sort of like... Uh, I don't know, dangerous vibes around her. They both seem to put out a very uh, friendly, jokey, cute vibe into the world. Mm-hmm. So they they started dating in 2008. Um, she had dated, she had previously dated Michael Buble. I believe he had Michael dated Buble. Rashida Jones. Yeah, the Buble himself. My Mr. cousins uh, and I always used to call him Michael Bubbly. That was a joke amongst ourselves. <laughs> that's a very... I, I see where that came from. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's funny. Um, is he funny? I just think what he does is funny that he has a whole career based on. Uh, yeah. Singing Frank Sinatra songs. Fringing Sanchonoxa. Fringing. Sing- <laughs> fringing wow. Frank Sinatra songs. <laughs> In a style extremely reminiscent of Frank Sinatra. But we're getting maybe a little too off topic. Um, I have a quote uh, from John Krasinski told Glamour in August 2007. Uh, uh it's not about celebrity or not about what he was looking for a woman. It's all about, do you have that girl in a cardigan in you? You got to have that. You know, that's what we're <laughs> all I really that quote for. <laughs> because I have no idea what that means. But evidently, <laughs> Emily Blunt, she had that girl in a cardigan in her. Yeah. I'm not sure how they met. Oh, I actually did look this up. They just met oh, yeah? at like a restaurant. They were both there and whoever Emily was with sort of knew John and just they just like met there and then went on a date to a gun range apparently this was oh what he said he also that. he has a very sort of self-deprecating style in his interviews so does. sometimes it's hard to tell what he's sort of saying as a joke and what he's saying earnestly but at least one i don't know interview he claimed that they went to a gun range fascinating yeah and they have i'd say that they are in a way that is probably smart relatively private about the inner workings of their marriage although they have certain times in which they you know part the curtain a certain i'd say purposeful degree and Mm -hmm. show you what's going on i they have lots of cute little moments i thought um i i went back today to look at some of the uh, john krasinski's some good news Mm -hmm. things from the uh, first few months of the pandemic which I don't know, blew up extremely fast, and then I think we're probably sort of derided as being corny, which they are, but I yeah, I, I had fond feelings towards them looking back at them. I mean, I didn't actually watch that many of them, but I think that 
the mode he was in there and sort of trying to essentially, it seemed like, cheer up kids. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a nice project. I was looking back for this episode, which just starts with a a cold open of Emily Blunt sitting at the desk saying, Hello, I am John Krasinski, and this is some good news. Today... And then it like whip pans to the door and he's there. He says, Emily, what the heck are you doing? Bits, I just find that a marriage. Yeah, I just, I just find the bits very cute. Mm-hmm. So they got married in July of 2010. Um, another quote I pulled, Krasinski told Access Hollywood that the proposal was very casual, but very emotional too. She did cry after I cried and we cried and then everyone around us was crying. He said, uh, they got married at George Clooney's villa in Italy. Again, as uh, one does, you know. <laughs> yes, uh, he, yeah. Well, Krasinski and George Clooney made leatherheads yeah. together, so I think, I think he's like leatherheads. Oh, sure. The movie we all think about constantly. <laughs> he said, "You're a celebrity, and I'm an even bigger celebrity. So please get married at my villa in Italy." And uh, how could you say no? Oh. Um, I think and- you hit on something that was very accurate. Like John and Emily, I think are private but good at giving you enough sort of public movie star charm that you they're like tricking you about how private they actually are mm-hmm. in a way that i think someone like christian bale wants to be private so he just sort of s- avoids the limelight altogether they're like we'll mm-hmm. give you these sort of like shiny fun tidbits on talk shows and stuff but that way we're a little we're able to be more protective like i think they na- actually navigate that really well yeah and i think we keep coming back to this topic of it is an interesting and weird challenge in a celebrity's life to have a public persona, which which the public sort of demands, or else they'll say you're being cagey. But then if you give them too much, it might spectacularly backfire. Anyway, they seem to be doing a very nice job of it. So from the outside perspective, they seem to have a very nice marriage. It seemed to be going well. They have two daughters born in uh, 2014, 2016. Uh, so they are, they are a little family of four, uh, much like the family of four that we see in A Quiet Place. So a Quiet Place, to bring that in, that is written by these two guys, Scott Beck and Brian Woods, who had done, it just basically seems like a handful of other sort of supernatural and sci-fi thriller type movies. They write this script, which is sort of inspired by them having grown up together in Iowa. Somehow it gets to John Krasinski, and he signs on to rewrite it and direct it. John Krasinski and Emily Blunt have never collaborated professionally certainly in this way before i think technically they've been in a movie and shared no scenes together but but she was originally like oh i hear you do this movie good for you here's some actors that you might talk to for the part of the wife and then she reads the script on an airplane flight and uh, as she puts it i had this overwhelming feeling of i don't want anybody else to play this part i said would you feel weird if i did this movie with you and he, John Krasinski, broke out into this sort of ecstatic smile. I felt completely sure about it in a way I hadn't before. It was a film that represented some of my deepest fears of not being able to protect my children. So it seems they both invested in this movie emotionally and got excited about it for very similar reasons, which is that they were both, you know, relatively recent parents. They had a two-year-old and a four-year-old at that time and found it an exciting way of exploring some of the anxiety of parenthood mm-hmm. through in the way that sci-fi does takes our real life questions and fears and yeah. then refracts them through a spectacular lens with these gigantic horrifying bat creatures. And I think John might have even John Krasinski might have even I still keep wanting to be so casual with the names that we're calling them. John and Emily. Yeah, John and Emily. I think John Krasinski might have even gotten the script like right after their second daughter was born and that was really uh-huh. when he started 
his rewrites. Um, I had, I had, he um, majored in playwriting at Brown. Did you know that? I did not know that. I didn't know that till last night. So he has like a writing background, which then would lead to this. That's so funny because I feel like I would just accept it based on his personality. I would just accept it if you'd say like he majored in agricultural studies yeah. <laughs> at University of Iowa. Or frankly, I guess I would have just assumed he was an acting student. Yeah, sure. He's a playwright. From yeah, Brown. and he has done, I have not seen them, but he's directed and I believe written two films before this, more sort of like dramedies. I think one is a David Foster Wallace adaptation. Yes. Well, I saw the tidbit that he spent like kind of his, as soon as he could with his paychecks from the office, he immediately acquired the rights to this book, Brief Interviews with Hideous Men by David Foster Wallace, which he had done a uh, an adaptation of at Brown. Um, he directed a stage adaptation. So he did what I guess those theater nerds of us would do if we suddenly had movie star money, say, Oh, actually, I want to do the film version of this Yeah, now. whatever my senior uh, thesis was, I'm going to do that on a large scale. <laughs> I'm going to do it again, but I'm going to get, like, you know, the John Hams of the world to be in it. Um, I don't know if he's in it. I, I feel like I saw a trailer for it once. Um, I guess this is the first John Krasinski-directed film I'd seen. Um, although, I've seen... I, I like his performance in Away We Go, with Maya Rudolph. Mm, it's kind of mm-hmm. a nice... Another beardy kind of a, performance. Yeah. Is it? Does he have a beard? Doesn't he? Sh- I'm not sure he does. You know, I've never actually seen it, so I might be speaking out of turn. Okay. So anyway, he certainly hits it big in a completely new way with A Quiet Place, which is a big thing for Blunt's career, but definitely an even bigger thing for his career. Mm -hmm. Um, And the audience reaction, as we said earlier, was huge. And I think it was interesting to read some of the specific stats I don't tend to keep track of box office and like opening weekend and like second day and those things very closely. Maybe you do as someone who a little who bit more, yeah. Writes entertainment news, um, but it was definitely noted that it defied some expectations for horror films. Which, as you say, even though it's maybe not the most uh, terrifying film, and it it really has some elements of thriller and action in it. It, it functions as a horror film, I, I feel. I mean, it is people in peril for most of the movie. It sets you up for people and then it introduces something scary and then it puts them in a scary situation and they some of them get out of it and some of them don't. So it has a strong opening day, but it also a lot of times, because these metrics exist, and I think these are so interesting, uh, a lot of horror movies will dip on Saturday of their opening weekend, but this one had a strong one. And it also had an extremely strong second weekend for a horror film, which also doesn't happen that often and as i mentioned earlier it seemed like it was you know just sort of the talk of the town as much as that exists maybe mm-hmm. the talk of the twitter if you will uh but also just people you know my coworkers in person are like oh yeah super scary oh super cool that they you know have so little sound and you know or so little dialogue and uh yeah it was it was big and, and in ways that things that explode like that go it is i think challenging to keep track of your own appraisal of something as it becomes so intensely talked about but i remember enjoying it and then i hadn't seen it until i rewatched it uh two nights ago how about you yeah same i really i actually really really liked this the first time i saw it i think it's a really nice balance of there's like a wholesomeness to it like, I, oh, I always really like just a sure. wholesome family story. That's a genre that always appeals to me. And so that, and I really like survival 
sort of post-apocalyptic stories. So this has both of those elements and that, you know, classic beardy Jim Halbert sweetness to it. So yeah, I really, seeing this for the first time, I really, really enjoyed it. And how about your rewatch? I still, the things I liked about it, I definitely still liked. I think I realized that sort of the like, I think on a rewatch, I was a little bit less invested just because I knew where it was going. So mm-hmm. the the cool acting moments, the character moments, I found affecting. But it the sort of, I don't know, stickiness of some of the plot, especially in the third act, stuck out more. Mm-hmm. It, it just is not, and this is just oftentimes just the way horror works, but I think the suspense was not as effective a second time around, at least for me, because... I did know where it was going. So it did diminish a little bit on a rewatch for me, but I almost don't want to hold it against the movie because I think it's not every movie needs to, you know, be as effective on a rewatch. That I expected that drop off and maybe my expectation of that drop off was what caused it to be an enjoyable second rewatch. I associate that phenomenon you're talking about most strongly with the movie Gravity, mm, where mm-hmm. I could not have been more wrapped the first time I watched Gravity, just wondering how the hell Sandra Bullock was going to survive space. Speaking of George and Clooney. Speaking of George Clooney, uh, star of Leatherheads. And on the second viewing of Gravity, I literally fell asleep <laughs> in the theater. Yeah. You know, in spite of it being like, bomb, 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 doom, doom, bomb. But uh, so peril-based movies where it is just sort of a who will survive and how, those can definitely have a drop off. And I certainly wasn't as edge of my seat this time with A Quiet Place. But I think I had, after enjoying it relatively early in its run and then having it become such a phenomenon and by nature of it being a phenomenon, being exposed to a lot of criticism, I think I'd actually got to the place of wondering whether it was even a good film. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it is a good film. I I agree that the third act is the the part that is easiest to critique from a screenwriting perspective and I guess a directing perspective. I mean, I think the biggest hole in this movie, maybe this is, you feel this is what you're referring to, but the, the death of John Krasinski's dad character comes at a place that is emotionally appropriate, but from a plot wise, it's one of those moments where you're, you know, screaming at the TV being like, you have options, man. Yeah. Throw throw a rock into the shed or something or like do a like you don't have to sacrifice yourself in this way. Was that really necessary? Was that really earned by the logistics of the situation? So that that moment is is the part for me where the plot is I don't know, forcing its way forward. This is a movie that created a lot of takes of people being like well they should just do this like go live by the waterfall go do this why don't you do this instead and i think that sort of became it's a little bit of its reputation after the fact yeah you can't go live by the waterfall they have a farm yeah they stayed yeah i mean but i i understand the way when it's when it's when a movie sets its central premise to be about 
outsmarting a certain mm-hmm. given set of circumstances, which I think is a really satisfying thing that this movie does. Of course, it's going to open armchair survivalists who are going to say, oh, well, you should have done this. They should have done. I actually think it does a good, mostly does a really good job of coming up with very clever thing. Like they have created very clever survival tactics. And that's maybe my favorite part of watching. Like I had kind of forgotten, oh, they have this light system where, you know, when the lights are yellow, it seems to be like things are going good, but they can flip it to red as sort of like a, you know, red alert, things are going wrong. And they seem to have all these little backup escape plans. And I had forgotten Mm -hmm. about all of those. And and I really enjoyed rediscovering them this time. Yeah, the little, the like, you have your, she has the cook timer, which she has to use to escape the alien right in the beginning. And they have fireworks that they can set off. Those are all really cool. And so, yeah, they have a bunch of good defenses. And at the same time, I think most of the ways that the movie contrives to put people in peril are good. The most insanely compelling of them being just a a, a great horror movie premise. There is a monster that will kill you if you make any noise and you are going into labor now and delivering a baby. It is wild. Yeah, that, that situation is the most... I'd say the most buy-in that that movie has for me is when she, when her water breaks, and when does she first? Oh, she it's, she's going down the stairs to get maybe the bassinet or something. She goes down the stairs and steps on the nail, which again doesn't feel forced to me. They they set it up well. It is and brutal. I mean, talk talk about something nail. that's. Very simple, right? Like, that's the classic. We're going to set this thing up and you know exactly what will happen. But they do it so well and you feel – like, I – there were parts of this movie where I was just like physically on my couch having to react like to – and this is a credit to Emily Blunt. Like, I was reacting to her pain. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. she makes you feel those contractions so well. Yeah. Talking again about – there are parts of acting that are not about, uh, I don't know, finding – emotional pathways or emotional modes they're they're just about doing mechanical things like convincingly acting terror or pain those i think are less you know up for critical discussion but but she does a great job in those moments yeah when she acts that bit of having a nail through her foot and her she's going into labor and she can't make any noise she just does a a fantastic job of it and i as you say you feel it i remember the experience of watching this in a theater, which was part of the fun of it yeah. was being with people and being in a movie theater where you felt like nobody will take a bite of their popcorn because everyone's relationship to sound has changed. And so people generally weren't like making loud vocal reactions, but everybody kind of involuntarily go, yeah. Yeah. When she steps when on she's that in, nail. In the nail. And then when she's in the bathtub and that yes. thing is right behind her. Oh. oh my God. Yeah. When it starts coming up the stairs. Oh my God. That that situation of the movie is like, I just don't think, I just, you can't shit on it. That's just great horror action contrivance and it's it's well directed and it's well acted. It's well shot. I mean, I just read that like, I had noticed that shot. It starts with a wide, faraway shot of her coming down the stairs, and the camera just slowly pans down so that as she approaches us, it naturally becomes a close-up as her foot goes squish right onto that nail. And yeah, she acts 
all the way through that. You are so right that, you know, you think of people going to acting school, which I don't actually think Emily Blunt did, but you think about, you know, studying the craft of acting. But then sometimes mm. the part of acting is convincingly step on a nail, you know, in a close-up shot. Like that like there are elements of acting that are so different than especially film acting, you know, like yeah, convincingly make people feel your contraction is such yes. a specific sort of request for this movie to ask of you. Mm-hmm. And I literally couldn't imagine anyone doing it better than Emily Blunt does. No. And it's it's a genre of acting that like there's lots of it. I mean, all horror films tend to or at least the vast majority of them. And if I am cycling through even just images of literally like blonde women, I'm picturing like the descent and ready or not and oh god the other titles are going rushing out of my head the uh wreck like all of these movies in which these sort of like survivalist women just have to spend a lot of the second and third acts of the film just like grunting and sweating and gasping and like holding their breaths and uh yeah it's it's essential or else your horror movie becomes very boring and she Emily Blunt does a great job of it. Not that that is, you know, the main thing that makes this performance great, uh, but it's a key. It's a key part of it. It's certainly what you remember. You know what I had forgotten, which is silly, but like I had really forgotten how much of this film is silent. Mm-hmm. You know, we get some even the even the ASL you know sign language dialogue we get is relatively limited. You know, a lot mm-hmm. of this is really just these people's faces and their quiet reactions. And I had yeah. forgotten how bold the movie was in that choice. And it's helped along by the fact that it's only 90 minutes. Like it really, especially on a rewatch, I was like, this thing is booking. Like she's already into labor. I think when I was first watching it, because I felt so stressed, it, it didn't necessarily feel like it was going so fast. But this time around, I was, you know, just more looking at the mechanics of the screenplay. I was like, yeah, they are not, it's like, okay, let's establish First kid's tragic death, a little bit of their life on the farm, and now we're just into the third act sort of survival mode. And I yeah. think it's good that it doesn't that it doesn't overstay its welcome. Yeah, and I think it part of that is that it's it's small in scope in a way that I really admire. That is also really unique for film. I mean, there's literally five credited, no, six credited characters, and there are only seven actors listed on IMDb if you count, including the the dead wife of the man Mm -hmm. in the woods. And that's so rare. Like the next smallest film I could think of is Ex Machina. And even that has a cast of like eight robotic girls that pop up spoilers for Ex Machina. Um, But it's rare to have something that is so small and it's in its scale. It all essentially takes place on the farm, except for a few other locations. It's just got these characters. So you're right. It, it, it feels like it can, really spend the time with them and their world. And yet the whole thing clocks in. I didn't even track the time, but you say it's 90 minutes long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it goes. I tracked it because I Googled it. I was like, okay, I got to watch this movie. How long is this going to take? And I was like, 90 minutes. Yes. I'm so easy, excited. Easy. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Um, yes. I Because the, the characters didn't have names, in my head, I referred to them, you know, John Krasinski, Emily Blunt, and then competent daughter and anxiety son. And I was like, I really feel like I'm the halfway point between competent daughter and anxiety son. And I was really relating to both of them, especially anxiety son on this rewatch. I feel like in this like pandemic transition time, my anxiety has really spiked. So watching little sweet little Noah Mm -hmm. Jupe just 
every scene be like, we can't do that. That's bad. I was like, yeah, I feel you small little child that's scared of waterfalls and talking and literally everything in your life. Yes, he's very sweet. I mean, he's as, as the fourth most important character in the movie, or the fourth most uh, sort of central and POV character, I guess. Um, he, he doesn't have that much to do. And I think it is easy. It's easy and unfortunately common to pick on child characters for being children. I feel like you will always, for every movie that has a child character, there's going to be like a fair amount of criticism being like stupid kid holding them back. Like, I wish it just killed the kids. And, then, and it's like, well... Okay, asshole. Yeah. What were you what were you like as a kid? Anyway, yeah, sweet little sweet little anxiety son is uh I think well handled. And of course competent daughter is great. And she was she was much much discussed, um, Millicent Simmons as the daughter, uh who is a is a deaf actor and I think just a great she does a great job of just being an adolescent girl mm-hmm. in a way that feels uh I don't know, not not like a Disney Channel movie star adolescent girl. She she just sort of seems like a good normal human and she mm-hmm. she has as much signed dialogue as anybody else um and does a great job with that. I, I was rewatching a few scenes of it this morning and I, I just happened to not sync up the subtitle tracks. So I was watching them without subtitles, which is originally had been the thought of how they would present the movie with no subtitles even for sign language. And I understand why you're releasing what could be a blockbuster. People will protest that. Just go ahead and give the subtitles. But the scenes do work really well. And there's a sort of a really good simplicity where you can focus in on some of the acting and her. It's it's funny. It's 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 the kind of acting that I guess we would normally just call like line delivery. But she is or line readings. But the way she acts through her signs and the way everybody else does. I think are really nice and i think that is another part of the premise and of the setup that is extremely effective to to have it that they you have a a deaf child and that everyone is signing i think it really builds out the world in a cool way i wanted to give a shout out to this lady i watch on youtube named jessica kelgren fozard who mm-hmm. is deaf and uh does a lot of discussion of that and then discussion of just disability in general And yeah, I just think she's a really cool person to check out. And she really, one thing she has mentioned a lot in her channel is how much sign language as a language, it does involve more than just the signs. Like there is an element of expression to it Mm -hmm. as well, which I think you see so well in that Emily Blunt scene where she's sort of trying to comfort anxiety son (laughs) in his anxiousness. And she's joking about, you know, you need to learn to protect me so that when I'm an old, you know, late, great old yes, lady with gray hair old. you can protect and me gray. and there's so much like no teeth yeah there's so much sweet expression in the character she's bringing to the language and then you know you can contrast that with somebody like john krasinski who, who i think feels a little more uh like staccato in how he's speaking through the sign language and it's like i actually think this movie is a really interesting depiction of sign as a language and yeah so i would i would check out Jessica Kelgren Fozard for sort of more on that perspective. I just think ASL is very cool and I wish I I knew it and knew more about it. Yeah. Uh let's absolutely drop one of her videos on our timeline. Uh so hit us up on Twitter at rollcalling. And I'll put it in the show notes too. Aha, uh-huh, the show notes for finally gonna put something in the show notes. Um yeah, I had seen a comment actually from Millicent Simmons, uh competent daughter, about 
the difference where, uh, yes, John, like John Krasinski signs, and then even the way they subtitle him are like too loud, not safe, and and how they say the mother's signs are more vivid and more detailed, and she just goes to greater lengths because. As, as Millicent Simmons was describing it, because the father is more survival-focused, so he's very essentialist, and the mother is more focused on allowing these kids not just to survive, but to have a sort of a, a thriving life, mm-hmm. which is which is something that I think adds to the wholesomeness and tenderness of this family and invests you in them, that it isn't... It's post-apocalyptic, but it isn't, I don't know, like a Mad Max film or a, you know, Book of Eli or something where, like, you actually, nobody gets to drop the survivalist for one second. It's interesting to see these people who are attempting to have a normal life and do laundry and play Monopoly. And um, the scene you mentioned where Emily Blunt is teaching an anxiety son algebra and then reassuring him. That is that is my favorite scene mm-hmm. of the movie and the, the performance. It's one that just like stuck out to me, and I think it was the one of the moments on the first viewing where I was like, "This is a great performance." It's not just it's not just sufficient horror movie acting. It's a it's a great character, and it's really nice to see what feels like an authentic maternal tenderness from her and this brand of goofiness. You know, you know, Emily Blunt is being sort of like a bit of a joker. I don't know, just that that moment where she does those faces of when I am old and gray and have no teeth. Um, and a similar thing when she, in a previous scene where she uh, approaches John Krasinski in his little bunker and he says, beautiful, and then she kind of like puffs out her cheeks. Yeah. It's ju- I just find those little moments so charming and I could just like skip back and rewatch them over and over again. And again, it it's another one of those things where I remarked, okay, this is like a night and day, you wouldn't think of it, but this is a night and day different kind of acting job that she's taking on from what we were discussing last week with Devil Wears Prada. Where first off, the sort of engagement with reality, I know this is going to sound strange because A Quiet Place has aliens, but the engagement with sort of an everyday human personality I mean, I think the character of whatever her name is, Emily Charlton, or uh, Emily Bunt's Devil Wears Prada character, mm-hmm. is larger than life in her cattiness and, you quips. know, sort of like quips and her like obsession with this world and her like agreement to play by its rules. And then you have someone who, in in the character of Evelyn Abbott, or just let's just call her competent farm pregnant mom. <laughs> Fun uh, mom. Fun mom. Fun, fun, fun survival mom and, mom and not fun survival dad. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So fun survival mom is just so grounded. And it's so nice to see this sort of that that first act where they're just establishing what their life on the farm is like. After they give you a, a high key prologue with a monster attack and the death of their son. The sort of one year later... It feels like she is the glue who's holding everyone together with this just incredible power of familial tenderness, which is really nice to see. And it it kind of undergirds the film's exploration of this 
sort of defiant commitment to being a family in an apocalyptic scenario instead of saying like we can go into 24 7 survivalist mode like i want to teach everyone to like wield a machete which is one vision of a of an apocalypse scenario um certainly what i expect to see in Zack snyder's army of the dead coming out on <laughs> netflix soon but um but it's it feels like she is at the emotional heart of this family drive well yeah it does feel like if she wasn't there not fun survival dad would go into full machete mode you know we're yeah. only dealing with the reality of how to survive and and i had actually i don't know how i had completely forgotten the prologue of this movie where their son dies like i had just been remembering the stuff on the farm so that was actually kind of i oh. mean as soon as it started I i'm not sure how that happened either it was like like i was like oh god i completely forgot that that's how this started i think that's the sequence where he actually dies which was a big part of the marketing where he he's playing with his little rocket chip toy and then he gets taken away i think that sequence is so effectively done and the way they all react to it like not fun survival Mm -hmm. dad immediately going to try to rescue him versus like you just see like emily blunt just immediately knows what's going to happen and just like gives into it like she doesn't even try to do anything yes in in, like because no she doesn't run because she can't and it you don't want to wrap her hands over her mouth if anything you know that you're going to try to not risk yourself because you want to then be there for your other kids like a lot of this movie is about you know the choices that you have to make but i think that prologue is so effective because then you sort of see the rest of the movie as how they've all responded to this grief that they're feeling from the death of you know this adorable boy that honestly i do think they could have done a better job looking after him (laughs) there's a lot of points in that store where they're like oh okay just go find your mom and i'm like don't let this four-year-old boy wander in this store by himself Anyway, it's interesting to me that they make the choice to have Emily Blunt's character go so into the the kindness and the warmth because it almost yes. feels like she has forgotten it or it's less affected by it than everyone else until you get the sort of post-birth scene where she is speaking about it much more explicitly and the guilt she carries and you realize that her her warmth and her, you know, desire to have the other kids have have joy in their lives is her own coping mechanism to that and and she's not doing that because she's forgotten this tragedy that's what's fueling you know how she's parenting now and i think that that's a a really i don't know it is an interesting insight into sort of how different parenting styles and parenting in these very intense and grief stricken situations yes and she seems to be doing it from a very outward facing like she's putting out what the rest of her family needs in a very selfless way. And I don't mean to say that his character is selfish. You know, he's obviously also trying to, trying to, you know, serve everyone. And and it is ultimately that commitment, you know, when she says, I do see the way that their conversation, and that's what I had forgotten. I'd forgotten they ever had a, a spoken conversation. I had forgotten she had American accent. When she started yeah. speaking in American accent, I was like, oh, this is very strange. What? I, I guess I remember that, but I forgot that they spoke. But when she says, what are we if we can't protect them? And he, from that point on, you can see the, like, the pathway unfolding before him where he will, you know, literally, like, scream into his own death mm-hmm. to prevent, to to immediately, in, a, in an impulsive way, get his children out of a dangerous situation. That scene really works for me. I know you said that the sort of some of the plot mechanics mechanics struck you there. 
Mm-hmm. But that's sort of my defining image of this movie is him signing the, you know, I've loved I you, love I've always you. loved you. That's like, yes. oof, that's the exact level of like heart-wrenching melodrama that I just love. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, it's very sad, but I think very effective too. Well, as I say, I think it's earned emotionally there. I think it comes at the right place in the emotional plot. I just wish it was a situation where I was more convinced that he was out of options. But it's not a major grievance for me. That scene doesn't majorly irritate me. It, I think it majorly irritates some people. But um. The thing that was annoying me on this rewatch was there's a there's a part where she's sort of in the safe room with the baby in the an absolutely insane baby box. That baby box they make, I know it's like a way to protect oh, yeah. the baby, but that is like one of the freakiest things I've ever seen. Just that gives me the heebie-jeebies looking at it. But They that, had when two that, like, twins... Yeah. Yeah, no, go ahead. I was going to say, they had two twins on set, and apparently everybody on set was also freaked out about the idea of putting the babies in a big wooden box. But the baby's parents were like, no, it's cool. So they just did those takes very fast. <laughs> anyway, please continue. Good to know. I'm glad no babies were harmed in the making of this Yeah, movie. I mean, we'll we'll wait till they grow up, and we'll see if it, if they have some weird box thing. Or traumatized. Yeah, but go on. Um, when the sort of little safe room she's in floods, that's when I'm like, this feels like we're real. I appreciate that they want her character to sort of have something to do in the third act. Mm-hmm. But I think you probably don't need that, especially because the way the movie ends with fun survival mom and competent daughter sort of having this whole realization of how to take out the aliens is so effective. That last shot is so cool. I'm like, you give her this very earned hero moment i don't know if we need it i think it would have been okay to even step away from her for a minute in the third act because the ending's so strong they probably just had a moment where they were spitballing scary shit they could stick in the movie and they're like it's lit red and then the big creature just slides under the water which is one of the most horrifying images although it it then it then doesn't amount necessarily to anything because i think the next time we see it it just comes back out of the water but at that moment anytime you have a scene in a movie where someone like wades into dark water. I just am like, oh fuck, <laughs> this is as bad as it can be. So yeah, there's, there's, I, I, I agree that it's a little like, hang on, she fell asleep, she woke up, and the whole room was flooded because of what happened, a pipe, or, uh, I don't know. But um, yeah, if you just want to take the movie on an image based way, those, those things kind of, they all work. Which I'm mostly happy to do. I do think that this is like a really just well done movie like just a really pure simple confident in its simplicity movie and i think it's kind of cool that something this small connected with people in such a big way yes particularly in a time where what i will often complain about particularly because you know i love you know my beloved mcu films are as guilty of this as anything else i'm always complaining about uh sort of playing it safe on the part of big studios cranking out their tentpole movies. It's just do the thing that we know has worked in the past. Don't try something new. And in relationship to that, why create a new character if we can use existing IP? It is so the like order of the day, particularly with, I mean, where big budget movies are concerned, obviously there's incredible indie movies that are always doing new things, but um, larger studio films, tend to always be doing that and this movie it was discussed was as they were getting it made there was i think some discussion from the studio about whether they wanted to make this to lump this in with the cloverfield cinematic Mm. universe 
which I think that had, beloved cinematic universe. <laughs> well, yeah, it didn't it didn't exactly take off, but you know, it was at a time when they were still shooting their shot with things. Um, no, there was definitely a period a period where they were like, let's just make everything a Cloverfield film. Yeah, like they they really. Yeah, they really and, tried to make that a thing. And so you can totally see the studio logic of being like, hang on, we got two big stars in an alien invasion movie. We are not going to be able to get people here on it being a horror. Let's make it another Cloverfield film. Because I think, frankly, the the uh, experience has shown people will go see recognizable titles, even in numbers that the first films did not earn. But they did not do that. And... You know, John Krasinski and co. speak happily about the fact that they were not asked to play ball with another cinematic universe. They got to make their own independent thing. Um, maybe it was uh, one of the two guys, Scott Scott or Brian, the writers. Um, but yeah, it was kind of its own thing. I guess maybe I'm wrong in calling it a, in in filing it in with my discussion of big budget movies, because I think it was pretty small i think it was in the neighborhood of wikipedia says 17 to 21 million somewhere oh, yeah. in that range so that is that is and pretty then it makes small. 341 million worldwide i mean that's so this they were happy <laughs> what a success story yeah absolutely um i do think there was also some talk at the time of like letting it be its own thing as a new thing and then also maybe just letting it be one film letting it be self-contained and calling it with no sequel of course when you make that box office on that budget you cannot not have a sequel. The sequels are are mandated. So uh, Quiet Place 2 comes out very soon. And in fact, if you're listening to this episode, it's out. So I have not even watched a trailer for A Quiet Place 2. Have you? No, actually. I try to, kind of tried to avoid trailers when I can. Yeah, I agree. I, if I, I think if I'm likely to see a movie, I'm like, well, I just don't want to do that because there's so many... You know, we've all had the experience of watching a movie and having some moment hit and being like, damn, I bet that would be a cool surprise if I didn't know from the trailer that it was going to happen. So I don't know almost anything about this. I guess I have the impression, and this is what I would do if I were writing it too, that they will not be on the farm, that they're going to go out into the world. And I also think from getting pushed an Instagram ad that there will be a, a small element of prequel, although maybe that's, maybe they're just showing us the first 10 minutes, but I think I know that there will be like, a, what was it like when the aliens first showed up and John Krasinski will appear in this film and he's pretty dead. So do you know who the other, the other actors are that are in this movie? Or I, one of them? I, I actually know that Killian Murphy's. Okay. Gonna I was going to say, I was going to not tell you if you didn't know, but I thought that might be a selling yeah. point for you as well. Oh yeah. I mean, you don't have to sell me, but I would, I, Killian Murphy is a huge selling point to me. So I hope that he is good. I mean, of course he'll be good. He's, how can he not be good? But I hope that it's a fun <laughs> character. I hope they use him well. I hope that it's good. It'll be a bummer for me if we have to spend the second half of the episode being like, ah, second one sucked. But I don't know what to expect. Do you have any uh, predictions for the movie? My, I don't know if I have a prediction. I have a question, which is, how yes. are they going to handle that baby? Because uh, <laughs> babies make a lot of noise. So that's, that's my true. big question going in. Even if you get lucky and every time your baby makes noise in its first few hours of life, there's something else going on somewhere else on the farm. You cannot get a baby into adolescence without some crying. So maybe they'll create some sort of baby blanket bubble. <laughs> Maybe they'll create a gigantic cochlear implant amplifying device 
Oh, and just, just walk around with it? Walk around killing the creature. I don't know. Do you think they'll beat the aliens? I guess it depends on if they want to make a third one or not. <laughs> You're right. I'm sure they do, so I'm sure they won't. They probably will, and then there'll be a post credit scene that's like, ooh, but one more is hatching. There's hatching this the egg. Of the aliens laid eggs. Here comes the threequel. Well, we'll see. Um, anything else you want to say about Quiet Place 1 right now? Yeah, I want to say that the part with the corn silo really freaks me out. And mm-hmm. I feel like growing up, I always heard about how dangerous those were. Yeah. And then I felt very vindicated when this movie pointed out how dangerous they were. And I was like, yeah, I already knew that. I don't know yeah. why I know that. I didn't grow up on a farm or near farmland. But somehow that was like really drilled into me as a kid. Like, those are dangerous. Don't mess around with them. You will die if you fall into one. I just remember that a guy in what is I forget what the Harrison Ford movie is with the Amish kids and witness. Oh protection, yeah, yeah, witness. He, yeah, witness. There you go. So he, I, I just remember like a bad guy is defeated by being suffocated with corn, and that is a great. That is that is again like when they're thinking of what can we what what. So we've got four people and we've got a farm and we got aliens. What else can we get up to? They do successfully pull in like a real world fear because some of us might not be afraid. Of being killed by a gigantic spiky alien, but we have always yeah. had a fear of, of being sucked silos. into a corn silo. We should also mention, just because we teased it last episode, the whiteboard is honestly even more ridiculous than I remembered it being. What is like, the weakness? I, I get that they're, you know, trying to get some exposition out there, but the idea that someone just wrote these things down, like, we need medical supplies, quiet. It's like, what? What is this helping you? Like, you're a year into this. These are the the things you still need to have on your whiteboard. It kind of feels like how you would design that for, like, Quiet Place to play. But the fact that it gets zoomed in on the theater and then everything Mm -hmm. or in a a film and then you look at it closely. It is a little little goofy. But I like his setup down there. I'd forgotten how nice the image of, like, uh, fun survivalist mom and not fun survivalist dad slow dancing to Neil Young in front of a bank of like apocalypse video monitors is. I like that. Yeah, it'll be curious to see what the sequel's like without him him in it. Or at least not as much. Maybe it'll be more fun. Or less Maybe. not fun. <laughs> yeah. We'll see. We'll have to we'll have to see what we name what Killian Murphy uh's nickname will be. Yeah, I wonder if Killian Murphy is a baddie. Oh, I was thinking a love interest, but that maybe would be too soon. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I get the impression it might be happening right after the last one. That's probably how I would say it. I don't know. Shall we find out? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, let's jump forward in time. We're there. We've made it. We're here in person. In person. Our first in-person podcast recording session. In my apartment. Great to have you here. Thank you. It's really great to be here in a, in a together space after seeing a movie together. Yes, which I found slightly overwhelming to be in a theater. It was my first movie back. I think the last movie I saw before the pandemic was Birds of Prey. Oh, wow. First back was A Quiet Place 2. It was more crowded than I was anticipating. A sort of high anxiety movie. You had John Krasinski's charming face to welcome you back, though. Yes, we had a little intro video. Yeah, a little prologue. John Krasinski welcoming us back to movie theaters. The movies are back, baby. Yeah, and so is Krasinski for a moment in The Quiet Place 2. So we're going to talk about A Quiet Place 2 now, which we will do spoiler-free for a second for anybody who just wants those general thoughts, and then we'll like we'll flip the, so- the spoiler switch 
and then it'll be open season, baby. Yeah. So we have not talked about, we've been very good. We went to Sonic, mm-hmm. we got some tater tots, but we have not spoken about our opinions on this movie. No, we haven't said what we think. I so don't really hit me you with your, no, I want you to tell me what you think. It was all right. Yeah. It was all right. I, yeah, I feel similarly. I did not have a, well, I had a bad time watching it in the sense that I was very stressed about being in a theater. Uh-huh. I didn't have a bad time watching the movie. I think it's enjoyable. It's like fun ride, but I think it tried to go bigger. And what makes this, the first movie so effective is how small it is. Yes. So I think something was kind of lost in the bigness. Yes. It had, I would say, a sort of a diffuse energy where if you were to describe if I were to say, describe the plot of A Quiet Place in one sentence, you could just say, a family on a farm is beset and must defend themselves from aliens who detect any sound. And they just have to defend themselves, and that's mm-hmm. the whole hook. And then A Quiet Place 2, if you were to try to describe the plot, which we will do once we flip <laughs> our spoiler switch, would be a lot harder to just describe. It's kind of like, well, this happens, and another thing happens, and... Someone is kind of off. Oh, well, they're not doing this. It feels a little bit video gamey in terms of like, mm. we're doing one little challenge. Now we're doing another little challenge. Now we're doing another little challenge. And it sort of keeps that structure throughout, I think. Yeah. And that's not maybe the most satisfying structure for a movie. No, it reminded me. Have you ever watched the Tremors franchise? Yeah. It reminded me. So like, I think Tremors 1 is, is a like great a perfect monster movie. movie. Yeah. Tremors 2 is not movie. a great movie, but like it's fun. Like mm-hmm. I enjoy I you know I enjoy watching Tremors 2. I like yeah. when they have to cover themselves in the fire extinguisher goop to like avoid. But it's sort of like, oh, the monsters is like been there done that. They're trying to evolve them, but like it's a little less interesting. So to me, A Quiet Place 2 is the Tremors 2 of the Quiet Place <laughs> franchise. Yeah. And that I didn't dislike it. But I don't think it is as good as the original. No. No, it's just, I guess, it feels like a, just doing a sequel because they had to, as we said earlier, they just had to make that money. And I'm certain they probably will. But yeah. but it's, um, you know, it just, it's a little bit less, it has a little bit less of a clear, like, raison d'etre, you know. And I think for purposes of this podcast, it also has significantly less Emily Blunt. Oh, Yeah. So if you are going to see this movie solely for Emily Blunt, you might want to look it's elsewhere. hardly an Emily Blunt vehicle. It's sort of sweet. I think the first one was trying to be like, here's the story of the parents. And then the second one is sort of trying to metaphorically hand off the story to the children in a way, which is fine. But if you're coming in wanting Emily Blunt to be the star of this movie, you're not quite getting that here. Yeah. And it's handing off the story to the children relies on some curious choices. Yeah, including a, like more, way more Killian Murphy than I was anticipating. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Is it actually kind of hands the story off to Killian, to Killian Murphy, Murphy for so many of these key emotional beats, mm-hmm. without giving you, I'd say, a tremendously clear bit of tremendously clear amount of information on who he is or a reason for us to invest in him. Yes, very fascinating use of Killian Murphy, and that he's sort of playing just like a. Slightly rednecky guy, <laughs> like a beardy guy who you feel like could have voted for Trump, but that's not his whole personality. I feel like I just in my mind, Killian Murphy is like androgynous space alien, and it was so strange to see him used. He did it well, but it was so strange for me to see him used as just like guy in a trucker hat, hat guy, hat neighbor, hat guy, hat neighbor is how I was like thinking of him, or just hat guy. Yeah, hat guy. We said we were going to give him a nickname, so mm-hmm. we've done it. Yeah, it was almost like 
with the removal of not fun survivalist dad, John Krasinski, I was mentioning being like, so I'll have this scene where, you know, I'm running through a train and, you know, someone was like, John, you can't do that. You're dead in this movie. <laughs> and he's like, oh, okay. I'll put in a different bearded guy who looks kind of like who has me. has the same vibe. And he'll do that scene. So, yeah. It almost just kind of feels like he's been swapped in. What am I... There's something that I'm thinking of. Maybe it's The Room. <laughs> the movie The Room where they, like, ditch one of the, like, friend characters partway through. And, like, he just becomes replaced by another friend mm. character. And they sort of surmise, like, they got rid of one. It kind of feels like they just stick him in as, like, almost... Really our main character. Yes. That's a little bit mystifying. Should we switch over to more specific spoilery chat? Yeah, I think I think let's let's flip the old switch. Okay. I mean I also say there's not I wouldn't say there's a ton in here that I feel like you could spoil per se. I mean obviously there's plot points, but Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say that this is a movie that hinges on a big reveal or a big surprise or no. It just kind of pl- it kind of plods along as lots of little episodic adventures. Although there was a scene that functioned like I thought we were about to get a dark twist. Which scene? Which is when there's sort of like three little parallel... It's one of the moments where the plot has gotten very diffuse. Emily Blunt is out going to the pharmacy, yeah. which is played, I think, like a bigger plot development than it is when really all yes. she does is she goes to the pharmacy, she gets some oxygen tanks, and she comes back. Um, uh, competent, competent daughter, daughter. <laughs> and hat guy yeah. are out on the marina getting trapped by some like nasty survivors. Yes, they're trying to go essentially reach a radio station to broadcast the frequency that yeah. kind of destroys the alien monsters. Yes, and and to get to an island uh, because go do that. Yeah, so so they're having their little um the humans are worse than the monsters like subplot moment, although that is actually resolved much more quickly Very than I expected it to be. But while they're going out there in the sort of like suspense is building, um Anxiety Son leaves Ooh, his anxiety is peak. His anxiety's high in this film. And so unfortunately is his incompetence <laughs> because as I was saying earlier in the podcast, he has to I think that in the first movie, they do actually a decent job of making him reasonably competent and anxious in a way that is sympathetic. But he, in this movie, unfortunately, has his plot driven forward by problems that he creates for himself. Well, it's not his fault he stepped in a bear trap. But there is a key moment where he is tasked with guarding his little baby sibling. Whom he... This movie also picks up, like, literally the second after the first one ended, which yes. I was not anticipating. And I do think it leads to a little weirdness if you're like, okay, Noah Jupe is several years older than he was. Yeah, they do this. They even have a prequel scene that takes place beforehand, and clearly all these kids are bigger. Mm-hmm. The, they, they use the little... They even have little baby kid come back, mm-hmm. but he's clearly, like, much ganglier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they made that choice. I I didn't beef with that because you have to do something. I mean, the sure. alternative is to recast them. Well, or the alternative is to set your movie a little further in oh, the future. Yeah. I could I could hand wave it away for a prologue. Mm-hmm. It was a little weird that the entire. I mean, I didn't anticipate the entire movie was essentially just set the next two days after the first movie. Like so yeah, little true. time has been covered. But anyway, you were saying you're talking about the scene where Anxiety Son 
he just gets anxious as as anxiety son tends to do and sort of goes up to see like is my mom back yet he and leaves, leaves the bunker he leaves the bunker that he's been stationed in by hat guy for no apparent reason and goes and explores and i thought was going to find like evidence that yes. hat guy was like a creepy killer or had his you know dead kids or like somebody Something. chained up and he does have he does find the body of Hat guy's dead wife. Yeah. Although that's never really corpse followed wife. up on. Corpse <laughs> wife. He does find corpse wife of hat guy. But then that just sort of serves to startle him into clanging some pots around or whatever and bringing mm-hmm. one of the many, many monsters that we see in this movie. Yeah. In the first movie, we had cited the scene where the sort of the little basement area is just randomly flooded as sort of a weaker plot element of the movie yes and i think a lot of the sequel feels like that mm-hmm. and that you're like okay i sort of see how this could happen how it happened is not the most important but it feels weaker than the things that are really well woven together yeah and it was sort of like every set piece is like okay she's going to a train to try to get a first aid kit or you know the the situations they came up with were less natural yeah they flowed less well and i think they were less character driven this was more of a just like startles and scares movie than a real strong character arc i agree we didn't so much have character arcs for everyone most critically and most disappointingly i think to me for our podcast is emily blunt probably had the least character arc she had almost nowhere to go Mm -hmm. and they gave her very little to do Mm -hmm. besides in what might be considered a metaphor going out to a pharmacy getting something and coming back yeah. To right where she started, the same as she was. I was wondering if it... Well, I have two things I'm wondering about. Yeah. One general thing, I wonder if this is a movie that had a lot more to it that was cut down. Because as you mentioned, scenes like sort of the pirate marauder, there's like a pirate marauder attack that seems mm-hmm. like it's going to be a bigger deal than it is. Weird of, weirdest of all to me is that Jaimon Hansu, who I consider to be like a pretty big or well-known actor, yes. has like a very small role and is pretty unceremoniously killed off. All of which led me to wonder if there was more to this story that was, they were like, let's just cut it down to 90 minutes or somewhere around then. We don't need that much. And then my other question is, I wonder if just, like, clearly John Krasinski is not in this one as barely at all. He's only yeah. in the prologue. Um, but I was like, I wonder if Emily Blunt, like, scheduling-wise, she had something else going on. If it was, like, an active choice to be like, you don't have as much time, we'll put you in this less. Or if that was just a natural flow from how they happened to write it. Because it is weird how much of a focus she is in the first one, and then how little of a focus she is here. Particularly when you bring in a completely new character to go on the mission and have the focus. And as we were saying earlier, like hold down all of these emotional moments and basically like go on this journey with competent daughter. Yeah. The setup for people that haven't seen it Mm -hmm. um, is... So we, we pick up right where the first one ends. Shall I? Can I? Yeah, yeah. Can please. I, as I was saying, can I challenge you to try to just describe the <laughs> yeah. plot of Quiet Place to as concisely as you yes. can? So very conveniently, the farm that they're on in the first one is sort of both flooded and on fire. So they have to leave. <laughs> they end up traveling to like an abandoned, some sort of abandoned factory, maybe to seek shelter. Anxiety Son gets his foot trapped in a clear attempt to recreate the nail moment. But I would say... I mean, our audience gasped, so it was effective in that sense. But For sure, because it's a kid stepping in a freaking <laughs> in a bear, bear trap, trap, and that's ghastly. But you're right, it's, it, yeah, it's a, little, it's a little clunky. Yeah, so essentially they end up in the bunker of 
Killian Murphy's hat guy, who has lost his entire family and is in full survival mode. I can't, I have to be alone or I can't be with anyone else. As you mentioned, we sort of divide plots when competent daughter goes off. She hears a mysterious signal of some music playing. It leads her to an island. Her plan is to use the radio on the island to broadcast the signal that destroys the aliens. And then we sort of, while that, I think that's the most, um, like the through line that probably works best or is most effective is like competent daughter doing a mission. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of the movie is sort of like, we need anxiety son and fun survivalist mom to have something to do. So we'll sort of like come up with some convoluted little scares for them. Yes. But those are just created. They don't arise from any plot. Yes. Really. Here's the thing that I really struggled with in this movie. I think the first one does a really good job of laying out the rules of when the aliens are attracted to sound, sort of how sound works, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. This one, it felt very much like, well, there's going to be some scenes where the aliens come because we want them to be scary. And sometimes an equal amount of sound will happen and nothing will happen. The rules felt more nebulous in a way that I think robbed the movie of stakes. Yeah. Because sometimes it was sort of like... If you breathe too loudly, you will immediately get taken away. And sometimes it was like, we need to get the alien to follow us. So we are hopping into a car and honking our horn as loud as we can. And that alien will not immediately come and kill us. It will just sort of follow the noise, but we're not scared for our lives. It just felt like the stakes and the rules were all over the place. And I sort of found that to just make the movie way less scary than the first one was. Yeah, I agree. And yeah, and the, and the, the, as as we've sort of said, the plot took us in a bunch of different directions and introduced characters that didn't really pan out. There was a lot more people, which meant, unfortunately, that had to do something that I do not love in, in disaster movies, which is to sort of dwell in scenes of like mass casualties. Mm. Those are something that I found increasingly, I don't know if the phrase would be upsetting or bothersome, but I just find them gross in a way where I used to say, oh, that's just how it is. But these scenes of like, I mean, I think they're really bad in, um, in, they're worse in other disaster movies where it's like, oh, look, the whole building fell on a whole crowd of people. Oh, look, a bunch of people like sucked up by this monster. But you definitely have a handful of unfortunate, like the quiet place monsters just like ripping into crowds of people Mm -hmm. in a way that I find like unnecessary and distasteful because it certainly wasn't like the first movie with a complete absence of that left you like without a sense of seriousness. You certainly did. It's it it just to me is like a sort of a disaster slash monster movie staple that I almost never find is like executed to my satisfaction. I sort of agree with you with the scenes on the island. Essentially yeah. one of the monsters gets onto the little island. A lot of this Maybe it's the island thing. It was sort of reminding me of Lost in the mm. later seasons where it was like, ooh, a mysterious, you know, beyond the sea is pl- is playing. Mm. That's intriguing. And so you're sort of intrigued. And then once it's resolved, you're like, wait, that wasn't really that satisfying. So what no. are we left with? And that little island, it felt very much like, ooh, here are the others. And then, oh, now the others are all just killed and by yes, Human like, Hansu. And like, that yeah. hasn't really added anything to it. The next day, like, as the plot seems to suggest, just, you know, a monster just happens to mm-hmm. like drifts to the island and... It's like, oh, the whole island's fucked up now. Well, it was another one of those stakes things where sometimes the stakes are, I can't breathe too loud. And sometimes the stakes are, oh, well, the monster just got here somehow. And that's happening. But I will say, counterpoint, to me, the most effective part of this movie was actually the prologue at the beginning, which shows you Mm -hmm. day one of the aliens arriving. 
and we get our John Krasinski. A lot of the stuff is in the um, the first trailer. I found that all super effective to the point where I actually wish the whole movie had just been a prequel, a prequel of those early days. Because yeah. that was scarier to me. Like the thought, especially with everything that's been in the news lately about like her aliens out there, there's all these unidentified objects in the sky. That kind of stuff really freaks me out. And this, op- we get an opening where they're at like a little league game and they look up and there's essentially just like a giant, presumably ship, but it almost looks like asteroid or something just crashing and everyone just like doesn't know what to do and sort of goes back to their car and that sense of like dread of like we don't know what this is and we don't even know how to respond just like heart sick so effective stomach turning like we're with our families and everybody knows something is bad about it they can't say what it is but yeah i completely agree that was a that was a great sequence and then the first and then we get the aliens attack which i was sort of surprised we got them so quickly Mm -hmm. And then we're essentially just following the parents in their separate cars, like trying to outrun them. There's a really mm-hmm. cool sequence where Emily Blunt has to, she's driving and then a bus is sort of like going off the rails and going towards her. I found that yeah. shot of like, it's it's like the Jurassic Park, like must go faster, must go faster. Yeah. You're like, okay, drive faster, Emily Blunt. Like you yeah. need to get away. I found all that stuff to be, you know, and like not fun survivalist dad and competent daughter uh, are, you know, hiding in a restaurant, like all that stuff. I was like, Ooh, this is mm-hmm. good intense. And I think the movie just lost that once we got back to the, like present day timeline. Yeah, that stuff is really satisfying. And unfortunately, because of, I guess this is a structural decision in the movie, it abruptly stops and jumps forward and then does not really return thematically at all. Mm-mm. I kind of thought, and I guess I believe, if you're going to do something like start your sequel with a, you know, one and a half year before prequel scene that precedes the original the events of the original film it is to show us something in these family relationships or in somebody's personality that will then like finally be resolved here to show like ah the seeds of this thing have been planted even mm-hmm. before the monsters attack but i wouldn't say it showed us anything no. like that. and it, i think the first movie does that well with the death of the sun yeah we see how then that we circle back to that being the impact on the family throughout the rest of the yeah. thing. If I'm being very generous, mm-hmm. more generous than the movie deserves, I think, <laughs> I think the prologue's trying to set up that the daughter is trying to live up to her dad's legacy, especially after he's dead. It's like mm-hmm. she wants to be now the one that's like the provider, the survivalist, that yes. will go out and solve the problems. And then ostensibly the prologue is setting up a dynamic between uh, Emily Blunt and Noah Jupe, mom and son, where she's like coaxing him to sort of like, you know, hit the ball, like relax, you can do it, you can be competent. And yes. then ostensibly he's his arc is, you know, he's he learns to be competent by the end. And he's the mm-hmm. one that gets to kill the monster while she sort of watches in awe. It's like a reverse of the ending of the first one, which is him watching the mm-hmm. mom kill the monster. At the end we see the mom watching the son kill the monster. I don't think those arcs are super well done or that compelling, but I if I had to try to guess what the movie was going for, I would say that's it. I think you're absolutely right. I think I think you are as you're saying that, I'm going, "Oh yeah. Oh yeah, it does parallel the end of the first movie." Oh, and they do set that up a little bit. So, yeah, I think it's not as if this movie had no thought, no focus whatsoever. It just does get a little bit muddled in the way that it executes it. And as you say, I think is more guided by the set pieces that it wants to do. Mm -hmm. Oh, what if in a train? Oh, what if on a boat? Oh, you know, what if like we're driving a car and honking the horn? Um, And that, that is a little bit less satisfying. It also, unfortunately, 
to the detriment of those scares, has to slightly like retread the ground of the first one. Mm-hmm. And I think it gets to a place where, with the exception of a few moments, it it becomes sort of unfortunately predictable. I mean, the moment in the first movie when competent daughter has returned to the farm and not yet seen the monsters and one like sort of comes in out of focus behind her is such a chilling moment. And we get like four of those in this, like when the, when the thing like appears from the water behind Emily Blunt, like, Mm -hmm. like it it sticks its head through the, the falling water. Um, it was just at a moment where like for fully 10 seconds beforehand, I was like, yeah, one is, (laughs) one is right behind her. It's going to come out and okay. Yeah, there it is. Um, so that the beats, a lot of the beats of the movie, it's like it drops into a new mode when someone's about to accidentally, like, set off a big sound or, like, step on a noise-making thing or step on a painful thing. I will say there was a, it was just a simple little moment in the end when Competent Daughter and Hat Guy are breaking into the radio station and just have to, like, climb over a desk with him kind of, like, balancing her as she walks backwards and it's just a simple little physical task that almost reminds you of like, I don't know, like summer camp or theater school or just like some sort of balancing exercise. But the two of them just act it really well and it didn't it didn't set off the noise that I thought it was gonna do. And I was like, oh, I guess this movie has some surprises still in it. And I think we should say that acting is pretty solid all around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good cast. I think you're right. You know, watching this, maybe because it's a good cast, I didn't really question Killian Murphy's, like, involvement. Mm-hmm. But as you brought that up, I was like, yeah, why was that character in the movie? Especially because it leads to a lot of, like, re-explaining things that I feel like didn't need to be re-explained. Or you yeah. sort of, like... I mean, I guess on the one hand, it's interesting to sort of see a depiction of a language barrier between hat guy and competent daughter and Mm -hmm. i did like some of the little touches where he keeps being a terrible person he's he's like essentially asking her to lip read but then does all the things people do where they're not looking straight at the person or not enunciating Uh or whatever that was kind of fun and interesting and specific but it was sort of overall i think watching them figure out a new communication dynamic is less interesting than if the movie had just been about the mom and daughter working together which does seem like what the first one sets up the image of the last the, the last image of the first movie is sort of like mother and daughter teaming up to save the day. Mm-hmm. And then you're so right that just being like daughter and random neighbor saving the day is an odd place to take it. So have you have you seen or heard anything or played The Last of Us? I have seen clips. I have watched like randomly many video essays on yeah. this video game, but I have not played the game myself. I get the strong impression it's come across John Krasinski's field of vision somehow because it felt almost like a shorthand for that is a, and I'm just now playing the sequel to The Last of Us, um, but the first one is about an uneasy alliance between a sort of rugged Appalachian, like sleeves rolled up, bearded guy who is hesitant to assist and then hesitant to form an emotional bond with a teenage girl who is gifted and possesses the key potentially to unlocking the, to saving people from the post-apocalypse. So I honestly feel like this almost was just using the shorthand of that. And there were a couple moments that felt like, oh, did they just like copy paste this thing over? (laughs) 
you know, like the like the the Marauder, mar, the the Marina Marauder people, who never had a line. And perplexingly, Scoot McNary, who is an actor with a career, played what I assumed was like a unnamed extra guy, yeah. the, like leader of the Marina people. It just felt like a thing that was kind of like copy pasted wholesale from a Walking Dead or or. Um, well, this is why I also wonder if there was more to this movie that got cut down. Because mm-hmm. we do have things with the hat guy, who I think his name is Emmett. Like, we have a whole story of his allegedly. loss. Allegedly. We have a story of his lost family. We have him set up a thing of, like, you don't know how bad humanity has gotten yes. in this world, which you think will then be a big theme of the movie. But ultimately, mm-hmm. we have a very quick marauder scene that's resolved. And then they go to, like, an island full of nice people. people and you're totally sort of like, okay, it. I guess the island is sort of refuting his cynical notion that there are no good people, but we spent so little time in the cynical notion that there are no good people that it doesn't necessarily land as anything really. And then we barely have any time on that Island before the monsters are there. And it's sort of the same sequences we've been seeing anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm talking myself into liking this less as we're having this conversation. That's funny because you talked me into liking it more by hitting out some of those, hitting out some of those arcs. I came out of it a little like, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I can't get over that it just feels like the what was brought into the plot was brought into it like either perplexingly or to amount to nothing or mm-hmm. and not enough Emily Blunt. Yeah, I wonder, you know, I think part of the reason to set this setting it just a couple days after the first one mm-hmm. does I think it makes in in that like imagining this is a real world, it's like okay, she literally just had a baby like hours ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, and also she so she's like physically yeah. tied to that baby in terms of like she's gonna need to nurse it and take care of it, and also you know her body's gonna be all fucked up from just having a baby. So that justifies why she does less in the plot from like imagining mm-hmm. this is the real world real world perspective. But that's yeah. another reason where it's like so why don't you set it a little far in the future? Like say that they lived on that farm for a little bit, everything was okay. We jump further. She's all healed up. Something happens on the farm and then they have to go out. Yeah. It would justify the kids being older. So the choice not to do that is why I wonder if, like, Emily Blunt just didn't want to be in this movie as much or if Mm. there was some other... It just is such a strange use of her that it feels like it has to be a purposeful thing that she wanted to do less. Unless I'm giving them all way too much credit and it was just... They just thought this was good. A good use of her. I don't know. I mean, again, clearly they wanted to, like, pass the torch on to the kids. Mm Mm-hmm. Who I do think are good. Yeah, I think they're they're good. I mean, Noah Jupe, who's gotten definitely looks like a, the like like bodybuilder version of his yeah. previous. Yeah, uh, he's it's just been like, a big two days since the last it's one. It's been a really big two days, and he has not been going hungry. He's been getting his protein and getting his reps in. Um, he gets kind of put through the mills and screams a shit ton, and his leg is completely mauled. Although nobody's leg injuries are, he he gets his feet mauled. Um, uh, competent daughter's feet are bleeding from walking for too well, long. Well, here's the thing. Why are they not wearing shoes? This didn't bother me in the first one, but you have Killian Murphy walking around in shoes. They're yeah. just kind of, half of this movie they're talking, they talk way more than they did in the first one. Yeah. Like, they'll sort of whisper all their dialogue. Mm-hmm. I was like, why are they not wearing shoes? Like, shoes are not that loud. They're mostly walking on grass or, like, a little bit of gravel. Yeah. But that... It seems strange. The the no shoes thing didn't bother me in the first one, but in this one I was like, yeah, you know, wonder you're all having so many feet injuries because you're needlessly not wearing shoes. It made sense in the first one because sound was, you know, as you say, the rules just changed. In, in the first one, when they knock over an oil lamp, they're like, that could be enough to bring them down. 
any sound was like big dangerous. And yet in this one, it's like, it is dumb to see her walking around with her feet literally bleeding and killing Murphy's like right next to her in shoes. And I'm like, get this girl some shoes. <laughs> yeah. You got to disabuse her of this notion that, that like the shoes the, are going to like get her the in trouble. Child, like get this man a shield. But get, <laughs> get this girl man. some shoes. Get this girl some shoes. Uh, I did want to say, just because it's such a horror movie trope, mm-hmm. I did find it weird that the two major deaths in this movie were both black, like minors, black supporting characters. We get a uh, cop at the beginning. Yeah. It's the guy from that played Hercules Mulligan in Hamilton, and then we get Juman Hansu. It just struck me as a thing that I feel like usually horror, present day horror movies are savvy enough to avoid sort of leaning into a very well known trope. And it was a little odd to me that this one did nothing to subvert that while adding. Like, I, I get the push to add more diversity, but then it's like, okay, we added Killian Murphy as our main character, and then we added two minor supporting black characters, and we killed them both off. It was so strange. Fast. Yeah. Diamond Hansu, I think, is, as you say, is the most perplexing. This is like an Oscar-nominated, Oscar-winning actor. And his only real dialogue scene is just to give, like, exposition that ends up not mattering. Like, to tell a story about the boats getting... Oh, and that was another thing. World War Z is a book I like mm-hmm. read last year. Actually, I listened to it on audiobook, which, if you're interested in that at all, it's a fantastic, mm-hmm. like, full-cast audiobook. Um but that was another thing that I felt was just copied wholesale. Is there's this story of people like rushing to boats and uh, and then they just did a mini version of it, which Simon Hansu did, and then dies the next scene in a kind of a stupid like one of those really predictable horror movie like I need to go back. Wait, I'm having second thoughts, and it's like turn around, turn around. It's behind. Uh, okay, it yeah. got him. This did have a little bit. I I mean I think World War Z the movie is a better movie than this, but sometimes oh, yeah. reminded me of it. that episodic. Yeah. So. In the way that we were saying, oh, John Krasinski welcomed us to a quiet place in the mm-hmm. sense that he was on a screen welcoming us. Yeah. I went to a screening of World War Z where Brad Pitt was literally there in person and wow. welcomed us in the audience. So I have one time had the experience of being in a room with Brad Pitt and he was like, hello, I'm very winded from going around to many theaters. Please enjoy World War Z. Goodbye. <laughs> so that was my, that was a little World War Z tangent for you. Did it cause you to love this movie, to love the movie I more? was pretty excited. I mean, yeah. in that really weird way where you're thinking, I'll be cool. Like, mm-hmm. I don't care. It is interesting when you're in a room with celebrity, the sense of like, oh my God, they're in front yeah, of me. Yeah, Brad. Brad. Um, and I guess... John Krasinski has actually done that same thing. I've seen from some Target and Instagram ads. He's gone into theaters of A Quiet Place, too, and said, welcome back. Them. Thanks for being here. No, I, I don't know. I wonder if those people love the movie. Yeah. Because <laughs> if you're like, this is John's movie, my buddy Brian John. It's, it's, you know, it's a movie that certainly, like, it, w- it would be possible to love. Oh, sure. Again, I don't think it was a bad movie. I don't think it was even a bad, like, theater-going experience. Hmm. Is entertaining. I just don't think it's great. No. Maybe also, watch yeah. if you want a Killian Murphy cool like horror movie. Watch Twenty Eight Days Later. Oh I yeah, think it's called yeah Twenty Eight Days Later. Okay. I somehow in my head I always mix it up with Twenty Eight Days Notice, which is a Sandra Bullock, Hugh Grant rom com. I think two weeks notice. Two. Mm, all TBD, I'll research this. Hey, speaking of this kind of thing, I do just have to acknowledge that since we recorded the first Taps episode, I have learned John Krasinski actually did have a beard in Away We Go, and I apologize for uh, for doubting you. I appreciate it. Ned also literally emailed me an apology, so it's a well-deserved, it's a both on-mic and off-mic apology, and all has been forgiven. Yeah, I just, you know, I just didn't want to take a, you know, a tone <laughs> about it. Um, 
the ending of this movie, we, I think, both sat waiting for a post credit scene because it's one of those things where the credits rolls and you're like, oh, that? It was a very strange ending. It essentially just ends... It's it, Again, it's going for the vibe of the first one, which ended on a moment of triumph for, you know, fun survival mom and competent daughter. Like, we're mm-hmm. gonna get the aliens. It sort of wants to end on that, so we get anxiety son shot an alien and i think literally the last image is competent daughter just like holding up you know the device that or maybe even like the thing she used to kill the alien she like brains an alien with like a big sharp pipe yes and like the classic like horror movie final girl like blood splattered on her face thing and and killing murphy's on the floor like watching in awe and it ended in that and that was so strange to me because to me i thought this whole thing was going to end in family reunion like, yeah. To me, this is a movie that's like the family separated, so the ending has to be them coming back. Yes. And the fact that it just ended with them all separated and no resolution, that to me felt a little bit sequel baby too, in terms of like, we don't want to fully wrap this up and say they all moved to the island because what if we want to make a third one? So let's leave enough threads open that we can pick up, you know, this day and do the next two days in the this yeah. family's life. It was interesting that it instead decided that the final emotional beat has to be like the kids are now strong enough to just kill aliens on their own and it did something interesting because it played music that if i'm not mistaken was a reprise of the emotional music that plays when john krasinski is like signing like i love you Mm -hmm. i always loved you so it's playing like i guess what you would call like the quiet place emotional family theme but what we're seeing is like literally tiny tiny anxiety son like blasting away with his pistol and competent daughter like braining an alien with a big sharp pipe and it's like i'm like this is i'm sorry wait what emotion am i supposed to be feeling here i don't want it to be the horror movie final girl because i think like horror movie final girl is like like when i think of i mean like scream for instance which is that exactly and it's a i love i love scream but i think the the takeaway of Scream is like there's these like sick, twisted guys and they fucked with the wrong Sydney Prescott and she she basically is enough of a badass to she's like now she can she can kill, she can like fight. She has been turned into enough of like a hard ass to like kill the guys who thought they could kill her. But the quiet place world, I would have hoped was like I don't know, doing something a little bit more about, you know, frankly, I'm, I'm it's it's a it's a wholesome family vibe type movie and I would be down for it to end that way. I don't feel personally very satisfied by watching these kids like kill monsters as their final. Yeah. thing. That's just not like like what I feel the arc has been like built to do. It's, it, you know, it's also like a sort of a distinction of, um, we've had some discussions in the past about superhero movies and like, what is the balance between the superhero's job being to save people versus the superhero's job being to kill villains? And killing villains is really, that's definitely an action movie thing. And, you know, if Competent Daughter had an arc in this, which I'm not really sure she did, although she had some really nice acting moments, it was her being like, I want to help people. My dad saved me. I want to go save people. And I guess she kind of did that, but the way they like had to drive that home was her being like, I can kill monsters. 
And you could even do the same sort of arc, but it end it more on the note of her, the fact that her signal went out is allowing other people to save themselves, which yeah. emphasized the point of her saving the world more than it would her violent action being the triumph. And I think they tried to do that, but they tried to do both. And the shots you end with, like the last, those really matter. And I agree that the last shot, what I was mainly focused on was how she like stuck a big thing through an alien's yeah. head. Well, it is the first movie. The push and pull is between, you know, the fun mom who's like, let's mm-hmm. still have lived in rich lives. And then the dad who's like, all that matters is survival. And that's mm-hmm. the war of that movie. The second movie basically just goes into full on survival mode. Like the, the second movie is basically like the dad was right. And everyone needs to live like the dad, which can, you know, there's an argument certainly to be made for that. Yeah. But it is kind of a bummer when what was so unique about the first one was like, I, you don't often watch like a post-apocalyptic thing that's about a mom trying to teach her son algebra because she has the optimism that he will one day need that skill. Mm -hmm. This one doesn't have time for any of that. And in fact, when we get to the wholesome island where that kind of future is possible, they all get killed. So it is much more in the, like, even though not fun survival dad is not in the movie, his ethos kind of colors the whole movie even more than in the first one. Yeah. I would say the first one, in spite of the first, second one ending with her theoretically like spreading the signal that will help defeat aliens everywhere, it didn't have what felt like an optimistic ending mm-hmm. in the same way that the first one did. Um, because I think like the kids being turned into warriors doesn't feel to me like an optimistic thing to do. I will say, okay, I guess they did an interesting thing with Emily Blunt's character to return to our nominal focus again. To It was an interesting thing to see her have to adopt some of the traits of not fun survival dad because in his absence she now kind of has to do both Mm -hmm. and she is losing some of those uh, some of the things that some of the parts of her role and her identity that she was able to pursue in that family model but again i think i'm now saying what i think would have been interesting for them to explore yeah so those she starts to do that change but i wouldn't say it's actually explored by the movie And now I'm just sitting here, you know, armchair spitballing about what I think would have been a more fun thing to do or more interesting or at least more blunt focused. Yeah. I mean, if anything, this was a movie where people were constantly doing things without telling anyone else why they were doing them, which then caused needless stress. You know, it was like, oh, well, I'll just go off to the pharmacy while my son's asleep and just assume that that won't have any issues. It's like, Emily Blunt, you have to tell him. Like, you can't, people can't keep sneaking off in this. Just sit the person up, communicate with them what you're doing, so everyone's on the same page. There was a lot of moments in this movie where people were not communicating, not in an interesting, effective mm-hmm. way, just in a, like, we need to cause tension, so we're sort of having characters behave oddly in a way yes. that's not... You know, the first one was so good about the cleverness of how everybody survived, and mm-hmm. I think this one lost a lot of that for just ongoing, episodic adventures. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of... That's kind of the whole flavor of this movie. Yeah. So, go see it or don't. <laughs> I mean, maybe do because I would love for them to be able to pull up out of the swerve with a third one. Sure. There's room in the plot for a third one that could that could still do interesting things. Although it's a little bit of, like, monster escalation. So, like, how will they have less monsters in the third one? How will they make it smaller again? I doubt they will. Maybe the third one's just them hanging out on the island and there's no monsters and it's just... <laughs> how do they recover from the trauma of it's like the wandavision of 
the Quiet Place universe. <laughs> Emily Blunt would be good in a like TV sitcom homage world, I think. She would. I thought you were going to say in a Marvel property, which is sort of a... <laughs> that too. That's a topic for discussion. Will she ever get... And that is a Quiet Place too relevant in that there was a there was a video making the rounds on Twitter of her... She and John Krasinski are both frequently asked if they're going to be in the Fantastic Four mm-hmm. movies as Sue and... What's his name? Storm. Reed. Reed, thank you. Yeah, yeah Reed, Richards Reed Richards and Sue Storm. Yeah, I was, I, I was going to give them both the last name Storm. Well, she has a brother named right, Johnny, Johnny Storm. Yeah, yeah. That I know, Chris Evans. Um, yeah, so anyway, maybe one day there will be a superhero property. We can revisit the Krasinski-Blunt marriage via a superhero property yeah. if it ever gets made. Yeah. Any other thoughts on A Quiet Place 2 or A Quiet Place 1? I think the, the second one is not bad in a way that ruins my enjoyment of the first one. I think when I think back on this franchise, I will think back lovingly on the first one and be like, oh yeah, they made a sequel. It wasn't as good. But I don't think the sequel is so bad that it feels disastrous to me. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I think I probably, I think I feel the same. Yeah. It's a shame when that does happen. Yeah. When a sequel is so abysmal, you're like, wow, I, ugh, ugh, I can't even remember the first Skywalker, one. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, Rise of what? I've never heard of this film. It doesn't exist. I don't know her. I don't know her. But that's a conversation we'll have to have another time. Okay, so we have now discussed all of our quiet places. If you wrapped up your viewing of A Quiet Place thinking, hot damn, I loved watching Emily Blunt fire that gun, but I wish she talked more. And also, I wish that the aliens were drug cartels. Well, friend, I have some good news for you, because next week we are going to be watching and discussing Denis Villeneuve's 2015 action thriller, Sicario. Should be a real laugh riot. Roll Calling is produced and recorded by us, Ned Baker and Caroline Cedar. Our theme music was created by Patrick Buddy, and our logo was designed by Nick Lanserski. You can follow us on Twitter at RollCalling or email us RollCalling at gmail.com. That's Roll, R-O-L-E. We'll be back next week to discuss Sicario. Until then, shh.